The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Is your organization a talent magnet? Is your culture the envy of the business market? Top organizations need top leaders. Make sure that you are that leader. This show will ensure that you are. Welcome to I Lead, The Leadership Connection with Dr. Linda Sharkey. Leaders today are more than just results. They are about creating legacies of great people, driving winning organizations, and raising the bar for themselves and that of their teams. Now, here is your host, Dr. Linda Sharkey. Hi, I'm Linda Sharkey. I'm your host of I Lead the Leadership Connection, and thanks for joining me this week. Um, looking forward to having a great series of uh, the month of September, and we're starting out the month with um, Chris Worley. And before I get to Chris, I want to thank everybody who voted for me for 50s Thinkers 50. Um, the results will be out soon, and I'm anxiously awaiting. I really do hope I make the list, and I thank all my listeners if you took the time to vote for doing so. I really appreciate it. I just got back from Mexico and uh, did a wonderful session with a fabulous company, FEMSA, over 250,000 employees, uh, really dominating the um, South American market, uh, Coca-Cola bottling, um, big logistics company. They're getting some more mergers in, and they are really a company that is forward-looking, thinking about what they have to do to transform HR, transform their strategies so that they can really uh, continue to dominate the market. Very, very exciting experience. I was thrilled to be with them to talk about the 12 tenets of the new workplace. So enough of that. With me today is Chris Worley, and I'm very excited to have Chris. Chris is uh, obviously a Ph.D., Dr. Worley, uh, from the University of Southern California. He's uh, the director at the Center for Leadership and Effective Organizations, a very great place. When I was working with GE and HP, I went there many, many times uh, for sessions. He's a professor of strategy at, uh, I don't know how you say it, Neoma Business School. That's it. And a senior research. That, I, that's pretty good. I got it. I'm glad. <laughs> Author of, of uh, many, many books. But the uh, interesting, well, the thing that I think is interesting uh, about Chris Worley is that he was a professor of mine when I was getting my PhD at Benedictine University. And he's one of the people that really was an inspiration to me personally uh, relative to the field of OD. I think Chris is one of the fathers of um, organization development. And it's just a thrill now to have him uh, on the show. And he was the chair of the Academy of Management, uh, preeminent for those of you don't, that don't know, uh, academic organization um, for the uh, Academy's organization development and change. And I just put a little plug in for myself. I was also on that um, board for quite a number of years. So it was a 
great experience uh, for me to be involved in that organization and to know Chris. So, Chris, you're living in France these days. I'm living in France and, and you know, trying to, trying to find a way to enjoy myself in the vineyards of Champagne. I can't imagine that that would be terribly difficult. I would really worry about you if you had a hard time with that. <laughs> so I, work at, I work at it very hard, yeah. I'm sure you do. And as soon as this recording is over, because you're about seven hours ahead of us, I, I think as soon as this uh, recording is over, uh, I'm sure you're going to be out in the vineyards enjoying some of that wonderful champagne. We're uh, we're we're out in the vineyards in the the champagne uh, the champagne um, they call it the vendage the harvesting starts in about uh, about a week and a half so it's going to be a pretty exciting place here in a couple of weeks. Wow. Oh, I envy you. I'm a Francophile at heart, actually. So the other reason I asked Chris to join the show is because he's just come out uh, recently with a book called The Agility Factor, uh, Management Research and Built to, uh, Management Reset and Built to Change. Uh, he has co-authored many uh, organization development books, um, published in the uh, Sloan Management Review, etc. But the book on agility... Uh, has really created a lot of buzz in, in, in the market. So, Chris, why did you guys do the research that really under and, – and it's quite a longitudinal – it's quite a long study that you've, you, you did. But why did you do this research and why did you apply it to agility? Why did you connect those two together? Yeah, Linda. Thanks. Uh, appreciate you asking me to be on the show, and and uh, and it's it's good to hear your voice again after uh, several years apart. So, I, I, first, I appreciate you asking me to be on, and it's a, it's a pleasure for me to talk about this. Um, I think the question for us that led to the book, the Agility Factor, the question for us was there was a lot of people talking about organization agility. There was a lot of people asking questions about how do we be more adaptive, resilient, nimble. Um, Agile was uh, growing in, in importance in the software uh, field. And so we, we started right. asking the question, you know, does, that, does agility exist inside of organizations? And if so... What would it look like? So that was certainly one half of the question. What, is, what would the characteristics be of organizations that we could call agile? And second of all, you know, being a strategist, I had to ask the so what question. And that was, so what if you're agile, does that result in any sort of performance advantage? Does your, does your profitability um, show any kind of differences compared to people who are not agile? So I think that it started with those two questions. What do they look like and is there any advantage in doing that from a performance point of view? And I think we, we started off just by saying, is there, what do we know about it? And, and looking through the research, uh, talking with organizations that had been struggling with the idea of being more agile and adaptable. And we sort of started there and, and said, what do we know about that? And that's what resulted in the, in the first book on, on Built to Change. And then, like you say, we had to start studying these organizations over time. We couldn't just look at them at one point in time because agility is really about change. And that means you have to look at these organizations and how they're, how they're changing over time and how well they're doing it. So that was sort of the genesis of the whole idea. Yeah, I I I, uh, I love that. And uh, you you went into uh, a fair amount of research around ROA, ROI, not just profitability. Why why did you pick? 
why did you pick those factors? So we, we started with the notion of, you know, performance and we right. wanted to look at, you know, are there organizations and we had kind of a working hypothesis, I think, that that if an organization was agile, it ought to be able to change over time. And because it's able to change over time, it ought to be able to um, you know, sort of post some decent performance records over time. It, you know, it's kind of a uh, I keep stumbling over over time because it's an important idea. Yes, and we we looked at we looked at all kinds of measures. We looked at uh, return on invested capital, return on assets, return on equity, and we also looked at um, notions of market based uh, issues, uh, growth rate, um, uh, stock price, uh, cumulative stock returns, and there were some there was some previous research done. Um, uh, that had found that organizations when you looked at when you looked at stock price in fact there were very few organizations that were able to sustain high levels of of stock performance return that turned out to be true in our case as well we looked at at, at organizations mostly large organizations i want to be sure that, that people understand you know we had to look at to get performance data, we had to look at public organizations. So we were sort of forced to look right. at large public organizations. And if you look over time and you ask the question, is there any organization that's able to sustain high levels of stock price performance um, over time? The answer is no. It's, a, it's actually a very clear answer, uh, and we're not the first ones to find that. Um, if you look at, at, at large public organizations and, and you say, is anybody able to beat the market, beat the S&P 500 over you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, the answer is no. Nobody's able to right. sustain high levels of stock price uh, return. Um, there's a there's one twist to that, and that is a lot of times people will look at cumulative stock returns, and uh, when you look at that, there there does seem to be some um, some evidence that that some organizations are able to post very good cumulative stock returns, but the the problem with that is it hides it hides uh, bad performance. So if you if you do if you get good stock returns you have high uh, high price appreciation um, over the early years of a of a period that sort of compounds itself and if the organization happens to stumble for several years that doesn't really sort of get you know evidenced in the data. No, you can hide that in operational stuff and you exactly. know, all sorts of things yeah. that, yeah, that don't out, really show that you're, you're really adding value. Yeah, Exactly. It turns out the market, if you're looking at stock price, we have irrational exuberance, we have market perceptions, we have all kinds of things going on there that has nothing to do with how well management is doing its job. So we right. then... We started looking over at, at profitability, return on equity, especially for financial services, uh, insurance companies, and things like that, and then return on assets for manufacturing organizations, software development, high technology, uh, retail, and boy, it, it just it was really clear. In every industry that we studied, there were always two or three, rarely more than that. Sometimes it was only one, but rarely more than two or three. Over a 32-year period, that's how long we collected the data, 
uh, or actually, you know, we didn't collect the data. We I went know, and, you and, went, and went back and looked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, not, that was I'm a hell of a long study. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that old. Um, right. But when we collected the data over that 32-year period between 1980 and 2012, um, in every industry, there were two or three organizations that whose, whose return on assets were above the industry average at least 80% of the time. And boy, when we saw that and we compared them with organizations that were you know, chronically underperforming the average or were thrashing you know, above and below the average, we felt like maybe we had found something. And, and we're able to look and see, geez, maybe those, let's go look at those organizations that have been able to sustain this high level of performance over a really long period of time, over economic cycles, industry cycles, technological disruptions, innovation. Um, let's go look at those organizations and, and see if they have something different or unique about them that we could learn from. Yeah, that 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 was great. And And you know what I found was really interesting in in uh, some of your numbers i mean you did see so many of these thrashers out there as you call them but it seemed as though the amount the number of companies that were really outperforming was pretty much equal to the number of companies that were underperforming was is that is that true so i think the if you separate the the what we call the outperformers the ones that sustain their performance yeah. above average for a long period of time that was a relatively small percentage relative to the rest. If you, if you start to, to um, segregate um, the thrashers and the chronic underperformers and look at them, I'd say there were, um, you know, again, about you know, 18, 15 to 18% of the firms in a, in a sample of an industry, they would sort of show up as the outperformers. Then you had a big chunk of these thrashers, uh, of, of yeah. organizations that would do pretty well, um, but then they would lose touch with the marketplace and their, and their profitability dropped and they had to figure out how to do a turnaround and return to profitability. Um, that was a pretty big chunk. I'd say another 50 or 60% of the organizations fit in that mold. And then again, a small, small percentage of the organizations, another 20% or so, ended up being these kind of chronically underperforming. They survived, uh, but their performance just never really was, you know, got to that average mark. And they, sometimes they were profitable, just not as profitable as the average. As the average, yeah. So we have 30 seconds to break, uh, Chris, and I do want to get into, uh, you have a very uh, good definition of uh, agility, so I, I want to save that for when we get out, uh, come after break, and I want to just talk to you a little bit about, you know, Amazon. They've been a lot in the, in the, uh, the news about their culture and how they're uh, operating and just where you would see that company headed uh, over the long haul. So stay with us. Uh, I'm talking to Chris Worley, a PhD professor, author of, uh, co-author of the book, The Agility Factor, applying really something that started in software development to uh, organizations and organization strategy. Uh, we'll be back talking to Chris.
Dr. Linda Sharkey promotes fact-based solutions for global organizations and leaders that are known to drive business success. Do you want to put the wow in your talent practices? How about a spring in your leadership approaches? Coaching and leadership development are proven methods that, if done right, really do make good leaders great. If you want a no-nonsense, practical approach that will enable you to compete anywhere in the world with measurable results, contact Linda today. Visit lindasharkey.com. Again, that's lindasharkey.com. Are you a business leader or executive that wants to achieve more? Not just in it and profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways. Listen for the Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. You'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. The Business Elevation Show can be heard live on Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, usually 4 p.m. U.K. on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more. Great leaders today have certain capabilities that set them apart. These leaders have discovered transformational leadership. Now you can discover the same ideas, insights, and programs that have led them to success. Inside Transformational Leadership, hosted by Kate Ebner, is produced by Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. We'll explore these stories and concepts every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are tuned in to I Lead, the Leadership Connection. To speak to Dr. Linda Sharkey or her guest, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or you can tweet the show at hashtag iLeadTLC. We'd also love to hear from you by email. The email address is radio at lindasharkey.com. Now, back to iLead, the Leadership Connection. Hi, welcome back. I'm Linda Sharkey, your host of I Lead the Leadership Connection, and thanks for being with me. Today, I have Chris Worley with me, the author of uh, The Agility Factor, among many things, a professor at USC, a leading thinker in the area of organization development, strategy, and change. And we were talking about how you create agile organizations and the research that he did, which was pretty robust, uh, to write their book, The uh, Agility Factor. We were moving into, uh, Chris, give me your definition of agility as it applies to organizations and strategy. It's, it's, a, it's a great question because a lot of people come to me when we're talking about agility. They'll be from uh, uh, oil and gas exploration or energy production or they're a regulated utility and they say, well, you're talking about agility. That can't apply to me. And that's not true. Uh, if you think about it, agility as, a, as relative to your industry competitors, we defined it as an organization was agile if it could make timely, effective, and sustain change. Timely, timely was sort of like you can change when you need to. Does the environment change? Does the customer change? Does a new technology present itself? And can you adapt to that by, 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 by mobilizing the resources necessary to, to address that uh, that environmental change, the, the change has to be effective. In other words, it, it has to get implemented well and it has to solve a problem 
um, related to what the organization does and how it positions itself in the environment. So that, that change has to be effective and it has to be related to the, the demands of the environment. And then lastly, the change has to be sustained. And we really tried to figure out what the right word for that was because what we intend by that word sustained is that you can put a change in place so that it does solve the problem, but that it, you don't become wed to a solution such that that change never changes again. So if, right. I, if I decide uh, I need some new leadership skills, uh, that's great. Can the organization um, make that adjustment, implement those changes, ad- adjust the leadership skills, implement a new performance management system, implement a new structure? And, and then does the organization recognize that the environment can still change Therefore, I need to change that structure or that performance management system or that leadership skill. So sustained means it stays in place long enough to work, but it's not embedded in the organization such that it can't change. And I, I think that's really important if you're talking about agility. Yeah, I think, I think that's important too because the whole uh, notion of, uh, of, of being able to change is – it's really sort of essential there, that ability to continually adapt without feeling like you're thrashing from one priority to another priority like many organizations do. Yeah, that's, that's for those agile capabilities. We call them agile routines. Uh, the organization yeah. has to have that ability to, to strategize and, and, and change its strategy as, it's, as necessary it's got to look into the future and perceive what's happening into the future or, or in its environment today so that it can, it can bring those ideas into the organization. It's got to try out and test and innovate and, and, and you know, see, see if things work. And then I think you're right. No organization can be called agile unless it can demonstrate the ability to change, not just once, but over and over again. You know, it, it it strikes me, though, there's been a lot written about neuroscience these days and uh, the impact that neuroscience has on, uh, you know, on organizations' ability to change. And the fact that just the word itself, change, brings out fear in people. And, uh, you know, we've been trying to teach people, you know, change management for years and years and years, but people still have a fear of change. How, how do you see overcoming sort of that notion in, in driving agility? I think one of the things that we found in the study was uh, the agile organizations, so uh, the Netflixes of the world, the uh, Gap Inks. Uh, I like to use Nokia, although it, 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 you know people challenge me on that because they're not doing so well right now. But there's a bunch of these organizations that are able to change. And one of the things you notice about them is they never tell their people that change is going to be over. So we got strategic ah. initiatives. We have all kinds of, um, uh, of projects, uh, program management offices managing you know different agendas, and a lot of times, uh, and, and organization development and, and change management is guilty of this. We tell people that change will be over. Um, if you think about the t- traditional change management models, uh, we unfreeze, we change, right. and then we refreeze, and Dave. I think. I think if we if we stop telling people that the change will be over, they won't feel like, you know, well, you t- they don't feel betrayed, 
right when the when the change comes along again no it is we're going to implement this and we're going to use it as long as it works and when it stops working we're going to change again because that's just the nature of the environment these days yeah, it's the nature of the beast and I, and i think that's really uh, I, I think that's really an excellent point so it strikes me as I, uh, you know, went through your material and as, as I listened to this discussion, that a lot of this has to do with how effective your leaders are and the kind of organizational culture. Culture has got to play a big part in this because some cultures are not cultures that adapt to learning. Some cultures operate on fear and punishment, you know, mm-hmm. uh, pitting people against each other, etc. Uh, how big a role do you believe that organization culture plays in this? That was one of the things we had to struggle with at, at the very beginning of the program, the research, was you know when we would talk to executives, they'd say, well, we've got all these great ideas for new products, new strategies, uh, new initiatives, but our culture is in the way. And we couldn't, it, we couldn't figure out if culture was really truly a constraint to the organization adapting or whether it was an excuse. And I, I went around and I started... I started looking, you know, to understand that better, and I, I ran across a, a, an idea uh, that was developed by Mary Jo Hatch, um, and, and she talks about she talks about organization identity, and and when she talks about identity, she she marries organization culture, which is an internal issue, and she marries that with organization image, brand, and reputation, which is an external issue. And she, and she says, look, if these two things aren't working together, if the internal culture of the organization is very adaptable, flexible, encourages change, uh, um, and, it, and it's a very exciting, exciting place to be and everybody's excited about change, but the external image is one where you're stable and unchanging, unresponsive to customers, if your brand promise doesn't hold up. Uh, to scrutiny, if if people have experiences that don't fit with that uh, brand promise, then the organization is sort of at odds with itself because it says one thing internally and it says something else externally. Um, and you can flip it around. You can have a very exciting, you know, come buy my product, it's fantastic, it'll change your life. And then the internal conversation, the internal culture is through fear, like you said, through fear, stability, tries to keep things uh, in a a bureaucracy and and tightened tightened down towards efficiency. Again, you're going to get some, the organization is going to fight with itself because people on the outside experience different than something that people experience on the inside. So it plays a big role. And, and one yeah. of the things we, we found was these agile organizations have identities that we call them change-friendly. And, and so if you want to talk just about the culture side, these are, they're change-friendly cultures. They encourage people to change. Uh, there's norms, values, belief, leadership behaviors um, inside the organization that tell people, like we were talking before, it's okay to change. That's what's expected. Don't be surprised when it happens. It's just the way things are around here. We change all the time. Yeah, and I I think that's such an important point. Um, One of the things that this strikes me, you know, obviously you've you've seen the news. I'm sure it's been all over the world, uh, the press on Amazon and what's going on there and how Amazon – 
appears to have this uh, punishing workplace culture where people are working 80 hours a week, where em- employees are encouraged to, uh, for lack of a better word, rat on other employees. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they take they took this draconian notion from GE, which is, you know, I worked many, many years there. Uh, of you know just absolutely flushing out the uh, the bottom ten, which in reality GE didn't really do, and it wasn't that draconian, but a lot of people think so. I mean, how it's such a well known company. How would you characterize it? What do you think is going on there? So so let's just pick up right where we left off. Right on the ex on the external side, customers love Amazon. They, it's it, yeah. the customer service, the variety, the different things they're offering, the websites, the, the logistic services, all those different things that are happening on the customer, on the external facing side. People love Amazon and, and it, it, it generates all kinds of loyalty um, and, and use and, and there's new products, you know, drones, there's all these things being talked about in terms of what's happening externally. The news that came out now says, well, the picture inside, in order to get that external things that you ain't love. Ain't so hot. <laughs> it may, yeah. may not be so hot, right? I mean, the, you know, we right. have to sort of figure out what, what reality is. But if you, if you take the stories at face value, boy, it sure sounds like it's a pretty crummy uh, environment to work on on the inside. And, and so if, if we just took those two data points – from the from our framework, we said a good brand promise, exciting customer experience, and a culture that that sort of beats people up and pits them against each other, and and all of that. We would say that can't be agile. And and if you look at Amazon's profitability, that what do you see? You see an organization that has not it rarely turns a profit. I think they've had you know, several quarters of profit. I don't, I think it's true that they have not had a full year of profitability. And, and if you look at their stock price, boy, you have that huge run up at the beginning. Um, and it, it kind of, you know, it kind of wavers around up and down, but from the profitability side, there's nothing happening there. So it's, it's kind of an interesting story. Yeah. It is an interesting story, and 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 to your point, uh, yet more to be told on it. I'm I'm sure because uh, J- uh, Jeff uh, Bezos was shocked that people would call it the Hunger Games of the workplace, which I actually <laughs> thought was a good, uh, a really pretty good statement uh, to make. So uh, it's no surprise then that in in from 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 what I read and what you're saying is that management and leadership absolutely do make a difference here and how managers lead and behave are absolutely essential if you want to have an agile organization. So we're 30 seconds to break, Chris, and uh, I want to uh, talk with you because our next section, we want to. I want to talk about how do you create an agile organization. You have four uh, routines that you say are really important for organizations uh, to do. And I want to go into those in detail because some of them are things that have been around for a while. Um, But what is it that makes these four routines so sexy? So stay with me. We're talking to Chris Worley, author of uh, The Agility Factor, uh, professor, USC's currently in France, lucky devil. And uh, we'll be back.
Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Dr. Linda Sharkey promotes fact-based solutions for global organizations and leaders that are known to drive business success. Do you want to put the wow in your talent practices? How about a spring in your leadership approaches? Coaching and leadership development are proven methods that, if done right, really do make good leaders great. If you want a no-nonsense, practical approach that will enable you to compete anywhere in the world with measurable results, contact Linda today. Visit lindasharkey.com. Again, that's lindasharkey.com. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You are tuned in to I Lead, the Leadership Connection. To speak to Dr. Linda Sharkey or her guest, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or you can tweet the show at hashtag iLeadTLC. We'd also love to hear from you by email. The email address is radio at lindasharkey.com. Now, back to iLead, the leadership connection. Hi, welcome back. I'm Linda Sharkey. I'm your host of I Lead the Leadership Connection, and thanks for staying with us. I have, I'm thrilled to have Chris Worley, uh, who is a professor at the Naoma Business School in both Normandy, Champagne, and Paris, all three wonderful places. Um, he's focusing in on strategy, organization development, and design there, and the school is really becoming extremely well-known uh, for uh, it's focused on organization development, strategy, and leadership around those components. So um, look it up. So thank you, Chris, for, for being with me. Let's let's talk now a little bit about the four routines that you uh, highlight as part of uh, companies being able to be agile. Yeah, the I think we when we started the research, I think we approached it you, you'll have to excuse us. We were we were we approached it a bit academically, 
um, we were we were trying to look at the way organizations were designed, and and so we looked at traditional things like structure and performance management, and at resource allocation and and environmental scanning. You know the usual things that I think organizations do, and the way the usual ways I think uh, academics sort of think about the organization. But the more we studied uh, the agile companies that had that sustained high performance and compared them with the organizations that were thrashing in their performance or, or didn't, weren't able to kind of maintain their performance, we started seeing the way managers and executives and leaders, the way they thought about their organizations was much more integrated than the way I think, you know, academics, we try and parse things out and, and, and split them up into their little nice little uh, niches. Buckets. Organiz- yeah, buckets, exactly. So, but executives, they live in a world every day where everything's integrated. They don't talk about structure on the one hand, and then we'll have a different conversation with somebody else about you know, another part of the organization. They're trying to manage the whole thing. And as we, as we started listening to them describe the way they managed, um, we thought those, the buckets shifted. And, and it really turned out to be not so much buckets of stuff as processes. And, and we called them routines. Uh, you might call them capabilities. But it's clearly something they could do. And they were doing it over and over in an integrated way. And, and, and so that we talked about, we talk about, for example, strategizing. Strategizing includes strategy. That's a good academic subject. And we can talk about how organizations have strategies. But strategizing was more than strategy. It was the way they managed the strategy such that people understood and shared um, what the organization was about, its purpose, its aspirations. They were really clear about uh, the identity and the culture and the extent to which that identity and culture supported the way the organization uh, went about its work. But they also spent a lot of time um, talking to people and making sure that it was okay to challenge the status quo, to um, to bring in new ideas, to say we need a new strategy. It's time for a new strategy. So they were they were always managing not just the strategy, but the way people thought about it, understood, and challenged it. Uh, there was a much more integrated way of thinking about uh, uh, about strategy than just you know what's our position and what's our product position and our market position. It was a was much more of a process. Um, yeah, you know, I, I could, love that. Yeah, and so the, I, I just want to ask you a little uh, piece about that though. In here, and I, I think that this is really an important factor. You talk about you know values being embedded uh, and driven into the behaviors, and I don't think we're spending enough time on that kind of thing. We're spending way too much time on competencies and very little time about making sure that the values are really driven into the behaviors so that what people see when they get in the inside are consistent with what's said on the outside. So why did you focus so heavily on values? Uh, I think... I think Lou Gerstner said it best. Not Lou. Lou Gerstner started the transformation at IBM. Right. But Sam Sam Paul Masano, his his contribution to the turnaround at IBM, I think, really has to be acknowledged and understood. Uh, he really pushed IBM to talk about its values and to to embed those values in the organization. So they did the IBM Values Jam. They they got to talking about what what was it to be like 
what was it like to be an IBM employee and to work in there? And I think he said it best. He said, values help you change everything. And, and, and yet, the values don't change, right? The values are relatively yeah. constant. You, you, wanna, you don't want to change your values all the time. They represent who you are and, 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 and what you're about. But those values should also encourage you to change. So I think there's a little paradox there that, 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 that I think they hit on. And we see it in the agile organizations all the time. They have values that are relatively enduring, but those same values encourage people to change. And boy, when leaders don't walk the talk, man, it, 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 it spreads like wildfire in the organization. It's just not tolerated. Uh, I, I think that's great. I mean, that's like, uh, you know, Ford, uh, same, Alan uh, Mulcahy uh, there. I, uh, yeah, he he is a stalwart around, you know, really living the values right yep. from the very top of the house. And, you know, they didn't take they didn't take any bailout. You know, they're doing pretty well, yep. all of those kinds of things. So. Yep. Um, so go on to the next one. Uh, change-friendly identity. You 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 led into that by saying you know the va- change is part of the values. Yeah. So the the so that's part of the strategizing routine, and and, and I think culture yep. and strategy are all sort of wrapped up together. I think that's a that's an important yep. way of thinking about that. the the second The second routine is perceiving. And again, it was yeah. very, it's a very integrated idea. I think we, most organizations are really good at uh, having uh, environmental scanning units in their strategy department. And the sales force is out there talking to customers. And the R&D folks are speaking with uh, universities and, and technologists and things like that. So that, that's, that's clearly a part of the perceiving routine. But more important than that is as you pull information into the organization, are you able to move it up, down, and sideways so that decision makers, uh, executives, leaders in the organization know what's happening in all parts? There has to be a lot of transparency. That shows up often as a value inside of agile organizations. Can people get that information from the outside, bring it in, move that information to where it needs to be so that people can make decisions and adjust their behavior. So I think there's a lot of structural issues there. There's a lot of information systems issues there. There's a lot of values there about how you, how, how you treat information and how it moves inside the organization. So perceiving turns out to be um, something I think a lot of organizations do some of the time, but they don't really integrate it into the way they, uh, you know, information is power in a lot of organizations. So if I add information, I'm going to hold on to it rather than sharing it widely. Yeah, and that's very interesting because, you know, you do also talk about this notion of, uh, you know, testing and, you know, if it, if it fails, it fails, but uh, learning from it, et cetera, which is, you know, that the, your next routine. But you know what I was interested in? You, you, you talk about Capital One. And you talk about how they really engage with their customers. And um, what's, what's fascinating to me is financial services organizations are not necessarily known for being particularly agile organizations. But, you know, you've got Capital One, and I just recently mm-hmm. interviewed whom I should hook you up with, Margaret Keene. Mm-hmm. She's the CEO of Synchrony Financial. Do you know her? No, I do not. If you don't. I, if you don't, I believe that she would would fall into your your agile char- 
uh, category. But Fantastic. she's set up. She's you know she's a just just become part of uh, uh, one year uh, on an IPO and. Um, they have set up these innovation stations, and they actually bring customers in to sit and help them problem solve around key issues. And they actually go out to the customers, and then they make these, you know, integrated changes across their system. And they're 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 known for being really customer friendly. You should you should really talk to her. Sounds so good. tell me why financial institution jumped forward for you. Um, again, we studied. A lot of different industries. And um, in the Capital One case, what I think really caught our eye was the extent to which they were building a change capability. And that, that's very, it's a central part of the implementation or the implementing routine. Uh, and, and when I started working with them and, and understanding what was about this change capability was about, I think a lot of the things that you mentioned was what they were noticing about themselves. They noticed that a lot of the things they were doing from a customer point of view were not as good as they could be. And um, it was the change capability that helped them sort of open up the organization, um, especially in these lateral, um, cross-functional sorts of ways so that when information came in from the outside, they could move it across. Um, Capital One noticed that they could do change within a function so the the um, the call centers could do change within the call centers, or the analysts could do change within the analysts. But if the organization had to make a change across functions or across geographies, that's when they began to stumble. And this notion of, of building a change capability um, sort of focused on that. They didn't want to make people. Uh, you know, they didn't want to embed the change capability in HR. They wanted to make an enterprise-wide change capability that ran across all the functions and the analysts. And so they started, they started very methodically. They, they, they took their time. They built the skills and knowledge. They built the architecture and systems and processes that were necessary for people to talk across boundaries. And then they went out and learned. They, they, they sort of, you know, you lean into something. They didn't resist change. They leaned, they leaned into it. And, and as they leaned into it and were taking on more and more changes, they learned. They, they set up learning mechanisms that helped them do it better. And some of the things they talked about, which I thought were so interesting, was they began to say, not only are we getting good at change, but because we're learning how to do it better, we can take on more change. And as we take on more change, we can get the results we're looking at for faster. So yeah. I think they started very much like you said. They, they started noticing that there, there were some things they were doing that weren't as customer-friendly as they should be. And they s- deliberately set out to build a capability at the enterprise level that helped them work across uh, boundaries so that when they gathered information about customers and what they wanted and what they needed, they could change the organization, not just within a function or a, or a particular unit. You know, it's so funny because, you know, you sometimes you think of these things as constraining and uh, bureaucratic, but routines and cu- culture and leader behavior, they're so important to be able to be fast. And without those, you really are just thrashing around. So, uh, Chris, we're going to be coming up on – go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say speed is important, but it, it, it has to exist within a system that's working. 
You just can't be even if, yeah. if the system's broken, doing it faster isn't going to help. So that that system has to be effective, and then you have to start designing it for some flexibility and speed. So I just wanted to throw that in there. I think that's an absolutely great point. And uh, stay with us. There's two questions. There's one thing I want to talk to you about, and then I have a question uh, from uh, that was uh, emailed in. Uh, from somebody from New York, and uh, so I want you to answer that. So stay with us. We're talking with Chris Worley, who is a professor currently at Nemo Business School, NEMA Business School in France, uh, focusing primarily on strategy, organization design, and development. Uh, really becoming a foremost leader uh, in the area of leadership and organization development. Um, we'll be talking about what leaders specifically have to do in order to be sure that they have agile organizations. And and then we'll be answering a question, a very interesting question uh, from uh, an audience member. Stay with us. Dr. Linda Sharkey promotes fact-based solutions for global organizations and leaders that are known to drive business success. Do you want to put the wow in your talent practices? How about a spring in your leadership approaches? Coaching and leadership development are proven methods that, if done right, really do make good leaders great. If you want a no-nonsense, practical approach that will enable you to compete anywhere in the world with measurable results, contact Linda today. Visit lindasharkey.com. Again, that's lindasharkey.com. You are tuned in to I Lead, the Leadership Connection. To speak to Dr. Linda Sharkey or her guest, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or you can tweet the show at hashtag iLeadTLC. We'd also love to hear from you by email. The email address is radio at lindasharkey.com. Now, back to iLead, the leadership connection. Hi, welcome back. I'm Linda Sharkey, your host. Thanks for staying with us. And we have Chris Worley uh, with us today. We're having a great conversation about how you create agile organizations and take that sort of software, high-tech uh, perspective and apply it to really keeping businesses that are adaptable. Um, he's currently at the NEMA Business School, teaching strategy, uh, organization desi- design and development, and I would have to say that the school is very lucky to have someone like you, Chris, there. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, I wanted to get to the point of leadership because obviously that's, uh, you know, that's uh, my sweet spot, but uh, we recently did a major piece of research, myself and my co-authors, uh, and published a book on what it takes to build a, a global leadership. And it seems to me that everything that you're talking about dovetails to what we discovered leaders need to do and be in order to be successful in a, a global, fast-paced, confusing, complex highly integrated world and you know that they've got to be able to deal with uncertainty and and with complexity and differences you know they can't be linear thinkers and you speak to that 
They have to be able to connect pods of people from around the world uh, to do innovation and not be uh, hierarchical in how they interact and work. And they've got to be people that can adjust to uh, all sorts of different country and organizational cultures and not and be, be really pragmatically flexible and not dogmatic, not, you know, saying this is the way it's got to be or this is how we do it in our country. So that it's that sort of change adaptability piece that you were talking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. and that perceptive responsiveness where they're really able to, uh, you know, tap into their intuition and tap into people and see when people are kind of getting it or not getting it or are, are testing things and they're learning and finally, that they've really, they've really got to be all about their people more so than, than, uh, than anything else. I mean, it's definitely not about them. It's about the people that they lead from around the world. And uh, what's your reaction to that? It, so- it sounds to me that you would think a lot of those characteristics of leaders uh, would be leaders that would a- be able to create agile organizations. Absolutely. The, the, I think there's, there's two parts to leadership in, a, in agile organizations. I think on the one hand, there's, we have to think about the skills, competencies, the, the kinds of traits that we want people to have. Um, and they, they, I think you're absolutely, they have to connect across boundaries, across geographies, across time zones. Um, they, have to, they have to have a diversity of style. Uh, you can't just you know, sometimes transformational leadership is the correct behavior, and sometimes a, a more directive leadership style is, is appropriate at certain times. So I think we're looking at some the, necess- the need for some flexibility in the behavior. The other thing, but that's one half. The other half that I think agile organizations have figured out is leadership is not just an individual trait, it's an organization capacity. And the organization has to set up structures, systems, incentives, uh, processes that allow these behaviors to exist when and where they need to exist in order to move the organization forward. Change doesn't happen top-down in, in agile organizations. It happens top-down, sideways, bottom-up, outside-in. It's happening all kinds of places all over the world. And so we need the people that have the skills that can do what needs to be done uh, in different parts of the organizations, but we also have to think about it, think about it as an organization capacity that is enabled by these structures and incentives and processes and systems that allow those people to behave that way. Yeah, that's that's absolutely insightful. We have this question that came in. Um, what you know, this is you know your field, organization development, strategy, leadership. Uh, what do what are some of your predictions about the workplace in the future? And uh, this this is coming from Min uh, from New York City. Mm-hmm. The in terms of the work the workplace the workforce uh, of the future, um, it, it's I don't think there's any question about it being technically enabled, technologically enabled. Um, I think we do have to figure out. How to, how to be more in charge of the technology than the technology being in charge of us. Um, we need to understand how people are interacting. The pace of technological change now is faster than most people can adapt to it. And so if we're looking at the workplace of the future, uh, I think it's important for organizations to, to sort of get ahead of that and understand how people and technology 
uh, interact. It's, it's not just a, a technology-driven thing. We have to understand the social side of, of the technical piece. So I'm seeing a lot of those interfaces. Um, I'm trying to get people to understand those interfaces and how they work because um, it, it, in a technology-driven world, uh, it's going to run over us. Uh, and, and I think uh, we're still yeah. going to see some of that alienation and, and, and things happen. And, and I, I just don't see that uh, being sustainable in any kind of way. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's like technology is wagging the dog right now. Yeah, yeah. Right? The tail's wagging the dog. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and, right. And, uh, I think so what else do you see? That, 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 and, and I think – and it's really interesting. I had a discussion with someone uh, – uh, who is an author about uh, millennials, and he was saying, you know, the millennials want that face-to-face connection with people. They they want to talk about their goals with you. They Absolutely. want to sit down and have, you know, yeah. uh, feedback and coaching discussions face-to-face. They don't want an Instagram, and they don't want to no. tweet. They want to talk. So it's exactly how, do you, how right. do you get the integration between the two? Yeah. So I think yeah. two things are happening there. One is the millennials, uh, I think, are surprising us. They, yes, they are comfortable with technology. That doesn't mean they are driven by technology. So uh, we have to understand how that interface happens. The second thing that is going to happen is I think this may be a, a blast from the past or maybe it's you know forward to the past or something like that. But I think the, a lot of the millennials – I heard, a, I heard a, a quote the other day that one of the – one of the highest demanded courses at the Stanford uh, Graduate School is the course in interpersonal communications. And so if you think about the history of organization development and sensitivity training and all the leadership training that happened in our past where we, where we tried to get down and sit and talk to people and communicate with them, I think that's going to be one of the skills that the millennials begin to understand is crucial to their own success. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant insight. I love that. I absolutely love that. Well, thank you, Chris. Any any other parting thought? Uh, no parting thoughts other than it was a great, uh, like I say, I really appreciate you having me on and thinking of me. And uh, I hope people uh, enjoyed our conversation. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it, Chris. It was uh, was really great. You were a perfect kickoff to the next series that we're going to have. Uh, I'm bringing on uh, Bill Conady, who is the former CHRO of uh, GE. He is really one of the people that led GE to its greatness in its in its heyday, and I would argue yep. it's still in its heyday. Uh, along with Ram Charan, and they 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 wrote uh, Talent Masters, and what do we got to do to think as we think about people going forward? Uh, and then we're going to be having uh, Mark Crowley, who's uh, a noted author, and we're going to be talking about what's going on and happening in Google and some of the things that they're learning. So it should be an interesting series coming up of of uh, which. You were a great part, Chris. So I don't want to stand between you and your wonderful champagne. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Linda. It sounds like a great series. Yeah, I look forward to it. And uh, thanks again, Chris, for being on. You bet. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of I Lead, The Leadership Connection. Please join Dr. Linda Sharkey again for another show next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a successful week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.